the biggest impact of these laws right now is all the uncertainty it's creating and the sort of pulling back from fear of the criminal consequences of a lot of activity that's probably legitimate legal activity, but because you don't know for sure, you're afraid. The consequences of the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade go far beyond the immediate right to terminate a pregnancy. Some of the ramifications are only now being realized months after the court's landmark Dobbs ruling. In addition to affecting privacy rights and equality, the ruling also touches on issues of eugenics, disability rights, and medical research. This is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas. I'm Satirius Johnson. Lisa Ikamoto is a professor at the UC Davis School of Law, where she teaches bioethics, reproductive rights, law and policy, and healthcare law. Her research focuses on how race, gender, disability, and wealth affect access to healthcare and medical technology. She joins me now to talk about some of the far reaching ramifications of the court's decision. Thanks for coming on to the backdrop, Lisa. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. So immediately after the Supreme Court decision, uh, many states moved to ban or limit abortions. Others move to guarantee access, but you say beyond that, the anti-abortion movement has tapped into and revised aspects of reproductive control to its own purposes. How so? Well, I have a number of examples. So it's been going on for a while. It didn't originate in response to Dobbs. So, for example, um, a few years ago, maybe 10 to 12 years ago, um, anti-abortion advocates ran billboard campaigns in neighborhoods, including Oakland, California, and Atlanta, Georgia. Um, And those billboards asserted that there was a racist eugenics campaign aimed at Black women and supported by Planned Parenthood. So the billboards basically equated abortion with slavery or genocide. Um, They had um, slogans on them or statements on them that said, for example, Black children are an endangered species, or another example, the most dangerous place for an African-American is in the womb. Um, so that's one example. So they're implying that that the proponents of abortion are trying to use that to suppress the African-American population mostly. But but in reality, that has not been proven to be, there's no evidence supporting that those statements, right? Correct. Yeah. So those kinds of claims, again, they, they um, argue that abortion advocates or abortion rights advocates are actually targeting communities of color um, in some sort of eugenics campaign. And then, as you indicated, um, the reality is much different. So going back to the late 1970s, Congress passed a law called the Hyde Amendment, which prevents the use of or prohibits the use of federal Medicaid dollars to be used for abortion, except when necessary to protect the health or life of the woman. So while the Constitution said until this year that everyone has a right to decide whether or not to terminate a pregnancy. It meant that for poor women or low-income women, they couldn't actually exercise that right because of the Hyde Amendment. Um, and disproportionately, it's women of color, including Black women, who are enrolled in Medicaid and therefore prohibited um, through the Hyde Amendment from accessing abortion. So that's one example. Right, right. Is there another? Yeah. I mean, in the past few years, several states have passed um, abortion restrictions that were effectively banned based on the reason for abortion. So they would, for example, criminalize abortion um, when the abortion was provided to someone whose reason was the sex, race, or disability of the fetus. 
And so that was, again, this sort of put into the eugenics framework, claiming that abortion was a tool of eugenicists. Um, and in fact, eugenics from the early 20th century, when eugenics thinking was very prevalent, used forced sterilization or coerced sterilization as its primary tool, not abortion. Abortion bans are, in fact, much more like coerced sterilization. Um, they take away the decision-making authority of the person who's trying to decide um, what to do about their pregnancy or whether or not to use their fertility to have a children. When you bring up the issue of disability rights, you also have said that public discourse about abortion has made it more difficult to raise concerns around disability rights. And in what way is that is that happening? I think so. I think considering the perspective of people advocating for people with disabilities, it's, it's, it's a really complicated issue. And the abortion debate is taking place in very simple um, terms. It's, you know, in the mainstream discourse, there's only two positions. Um, and that makes it difficult to raise any sort of complex analysis or conduct any kind of complex analysis. So, for example, for um, from the from the perspective of some people with disabilities um, or disabilities rights advocates, um, abortion and the way that it's conducted and practiced in the United States can be troubling. It is common, for example, there's so much prenatal genetic testing, um, and in the process of that, people are encouraged either by just prevailing social norms that are discriminatory. Um, or by genetic counseling that they received or encouragement from their doctors or their family to terminate pregnancies when a risk for disability is identified through genetic testing. And on the one hand, that sends all kinds of messages um, that devalue the lives of people with disabilities. On the other hand, um, it also you know, indicates that people who are considering having children face a very difficult prospect if they if they're going to need extra resources to raise a child with disabilities. Not every person who's born with disabilities needs a great deal of resources or any more resources than um, it takes other children to raise, but some do. And in the United States, there's relatively little social services um, for those families. It, it's not so much that abortion itself, the the, the procedure conflicts with disability rights. It's more about the genetic testing that comes beforehand and the social norms and the the lack of social support for children who may be born with, uh, with a disability. Yeah. And I think, like I said, it's a complicated issue and that's maybe just two aspects of it. I mean, to some extent, if the restriction on access to abortion will impact some people with disabilities harder than it impacts other people, people without disabilities, um, because it might for certain types of disabilities, it might mean that um, it would be safer for them, for them to undergo an abortion in a hospital setting, um, whereas the substantial majority of people obtain abortions in a clinic setting or at home using medication abortion. Um, and hospitals are now becoming inaccessible in many states as places to receive abortion services. So there is some disproportionate effect just through the banning of abortion on some parts of the disabilities communities. Now, the Dobbs decision um, also has implications when it comes to biomedical research. Um, what are some of the potential impacts there? So there's, I think there's a wide range of them. Um, as I think more about it, I'm coming up with more examples. Um, so the most obvious 
or at least obvious to me, <laughs> given the areas of my research impacts, are on research that use in vitro embryos. So this isn't true for all abortion laws, but some of the abortion laws include language that says life begins at conception or life begins at fertilization. Um, and so that creates the possibility that an embryo, whether it's in vitro or in the body, could be characterized as a person and therefore protected by state law. Um, and if that's true, then some of the research that's conducted for improving in vitro fertilization or for developing therapies through human embryonic stem cell research might put the researchers at risk because sometimes the embryos are destroyed in the process of research. So those are two examples. Um, it's also possible that um, some research that's, for example, trying to discover the cause of miscarriage, they're tracking the menstrual cycles of women, and they're using menstrual cycle tracking apps that are available um, widely right now, and those apps are collecting data. And so there's concern that the data could be used against the people who, you know, maybe the app shows that they missed a period um, or they haven't had a period for several months, and that might raise suspicion that they were pregnant um, and maybe mm -hmm. terminated the pregnancy. And that might lead to an investigation. And so people might be less willing to be using those apps, and then uh, the data is not there for research. And I think the researchers themselves have real concerns that they might be putting the participants in their research at risk for the legal consequences. Right. So, so many far-reaching implications, ripple effects that this is having on, on so many different aspects of life. What about the willingness of women to participate in clinical trials in general? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, we certainly saw, have seen during the pandemic very recently that it's really important to include women, including pregnant women in clinical trials um, to determine the efficacy and safety of vaccines, of therapies for things like COVID as, certain, as well as you know all the other things that we need therapy for. And historically, there's been a reluctance to include both women and especially pregnant women. Um, and certainly one of the concerns has been even pre-Dobbs that if um, a pregnancy ends during a clinical trial of a not yet approved drug, that the researchers will be found or the drug company that's testing the drug will be found liable for causing um, the miscarriage that occurred. Um, or even if it, you can't prove causation, that the suspicion itself will damage the prospects um, of the drug. And that becomes much more fraught now that you have laws that potentially criminalize or make civilly liable anybody who um, contributes to the end of a pregnancy. So researchers and companies are, are will just be more fearful of conducting any kind of research that could lead to, uh, you know, the accidental termination of a pregnancy or anything like that. Well, I think, yeah, that's a concern. I don't know for certain that that's true, but... Um, I mean, that's a risk. And it means that the, you know, it, the drugs that have been FDA approved without sufficient inclusion of people who are capable of becoming pregnant or people who are actually are pregnant during the course of the clinical trial, it means we don't have data on the safety and efficacy of the drugs on those populations. So when the drug is launched and distributed for use, um, it's you're a guinea pig, right? If you fall into those categories. 
are there any solutions or workarounds, you know, to address any of these, these kind of issues that we've been talking about? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, the solution would be <laughs> protecting the access to abortion services. <laughs> right. That would be one. I mean, that's sort of like, as I mentioned before, for um, research um, and the sort of longstanding problem of encouraging the inclusion of women or anybody who's capable of becoming pregnant, including um, pregnant people themselves in the clinical trials, that's a longstanding one. Again, it becomes more fraught for them. So I guess if it is, turns out to be an actual problem, means means research is going to be much safer if it's conducted in states that don't criminalize abortion or put people at legal risk for contributing to the end of a pregnancy or putting a pregnancy at jeopardy. Right. I mean, again, the Dobbs decision basically says there is no right to abortion in the U.S. Constitution, so each state can decide its own laws on the matter. Exactly, yeah. And there's still a great number of states in which abortion is still accessible. Right. But I was going to ask, so other than Congress passing a law legalizing abortion nationwide, are there other ways to ensure access? Um, I don't think there's a quick fix. I don't think that there's a single fix. Um, I think it's going to take a combination of political activism, including active participation in elections. So that includes things like standing up for the right to vote and ensuring that as many people as possible have the ability to vote. Um, So I think it's a multi-pronged issue. The other, some of the complications are being created by states who are passing laws trying to extend the reach of their restrictions and bans on abortion beyond their own state borders. So what does that mean? Is that like um, banning their citizens, their state citizens from going to another state to have the procedure? Yeah, I think they take play. They, they're taking, they seem to be taking different forms. So some of them is the prohibition on travel and the Biden administration, Merrick Garland, who's the U.S. attorney general, for example, has said that the right to travel would make those kinds of prohibitions on travel um, unconstitutional. That might still have to be worked out in the courts to make that clear. But there are also laws, for example, like the Texas Bounty Law, that's, that's what it's being called in the media, mm-hmm. um, which authorizes private citizens and residents of Texas to sue anybody who provides an abortion in violation of the abortion ban or anyone who aids and abets an abortion in violation of Texas law to um, sue someone. And there's a penalty of $10,000 or damages of $10,000. So the question is, to what extent can a Texas citizen, for example, sue an out-of-state provider Hmm. um, or the Uber driver, right, who transported um, the person to New Mexico to receive the abortion services. Right. So it would definitely have a chilling effect uh, before any of this was kind of worked out in the courts, at least. Yes. Yeah. It's creating, I think the biggest impact of these laws right now is all the uncertainty it's creating and the sort of pulling back from fear of the criminal consequences of a lot of activity that's probably legitimate legal activity. Um, but because you don't know for sure, you're afraid. <laughs> right. So where do you see the status of abortion rights in the U.S. heading in the next few years? 
Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> I tend to be an optimist. And so, you know, I think we're starting to see the realities of the effects of these laws. Many people thought before the Dobbs decision was passed that a decision by the Supreme Court that said abortion is a state's rights issue, that that would simplify everything. And in reality, it's turning out to be much more complicated. And the other, you know, very hard reality is that the impacts on abortion bans are very, very harmful. Um, And the majority of people in poll after poll say they don't want complete abortion bans. They might agree with some abortion restrictions, but they don't want complete abortion bans. Um, And so my hope is that that will prompt people to advocate in different ways, including through voting, um, on the ground activity, through policy organizations, to open up the door again to abortion in the states that have in the meantime passed bans. So the states themselves will retract. I kind of feel like, you know, elections on the state level and the more local levels, a lot of people just didn't really take them all that seriously compared to, you know, voting for your congressperson or for president. Yeah. And now we're realizing like, well, that's the level that a lot of these decisions are being made at. And so if people take those more local elections more seriously, maybe the representatives elected might actually reflect the popular position on these on these things. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. When I talk to students, I say you have to vote all the way down the ticket because the person who you're voting for for city council might then run for state office, right? And yeah. eventually maybe they end up in the state senate or the state legislature or the person that you're voting for as a judge, right, might get elevated to a court of appeals where their decision becomes precedent and maybe it's an abortion decision. So all those little elections add up. Yeah, they absolutely do. And uh, kind of a whole other topic is I feel like civics education in this country needs to be supported better at the younger level, too, because that's how you get people to realize how important it is to participate in the democracy for it to work. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a whole other conversation, though. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Well, Lisa, thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk with you. Hope I get to see you in person sometime. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll have to make it happen. Thanks, Asterios. Sure. Thank you. Lisa Ikamoto is a professor at the UC Davis School of Law. You can find more about her work on our website, ucdavis.edu slash podcast. If you like this podcast, check out another UC Davis podcast, Unfold. Season four explores the most cutting edge technologies and treatments that help advance the health of both people and animals. Join public radio veterans and Unfold hosts, Amy Quinton and Marianne Russ Sharp, as they unfold stories about the people and animals affected the most by this research. I'm Satirius Johnson, and this is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas.